This is History 2311, Week 5A, The Jazz Age. happy to get to this lecture. Uh, in the last few weeks, we've discussed the horrors of Jim Crow. We've talked about the victory of the corporate money power over democracy in 1896. We've talked about immigration restriction and the Ku Klux Klan. It might be worth reassuring you at this point that I actually love the United States. Um, I, I love Americans. I, I find it a great country. I find Americans friendly and generous and welcoming. I love so much of American culture, whether it's comic books or action movies or video games or rock music. To me, the United States is the greatest show on earth. So while it is very important to me to look at the dark side of American history, it is also a great relief to get to a lecture about some of the reasons I and, and many other people love the United States of America. And I know I'm not alone in that. I mean, all around the world, people watch American movies, they mimic American fashions, they listen to American music, or they make their own music in American styles. And this has been true for, you know, a hundred years. Uh, America's immense power and influence in the 20th century, it rested on their wealth and their productivity, and later on, uh, their military might, but it also rested on what we might call soft power, which is the cultural influence of the United States. America's ability to attract and co-opt people because it was appealing to them rather than have to coerce them with hard power. So today, as I talk about the culture of the 1920s, the jazz age culture of the 1920s, kind of the question lurking behind my lecture is just what made American culture so appealing and attractive to the whole world in the 20th century? How did American popular culture become global popular culture? Or if you wanna put it more simply, what made America cool? And when I say what made America cool, uh, the use of the word cool here in the 1920s is not an anachronism. Uh, the slang term cool, seems to have been around in African-American culture since uh, as early as the 1880s, 1890s. And young white Americans picked it up in the 1920s, like just about everything else in this lecture, actually. Now, I should say I don't love everything about American popular culture in the 1920s. And I should note that this lecture does contain a few images of performers in blackface. Uh, which is a practice that, you know, people rightly see today as racist and de dehumanizing, but which was ubiquitous in American popular culture 
in the 1920s and earlier. So once again, I pointed out that these images are in the presentation and I don't believe I am using them gratuitously. They are, as you will see, part of the history we are telling today. So what made American culture cool? As a historian, if I wanna answer a question like that, my first instinct is to ask, well, what is the history? When did this start? When did the world develop an appetite for American popular culture? When historically did America become cool? And there is an easy answer to that, the 1920s. Europeans really noticed the United States and American culture with the end of the First World War. Wilson's rapturous welcome in Paris in 1918 was in part a rapturous welcome for the United States on the world stage. The United States became really a significant economic power in the late 19th century. It would not embrace military and political leadership truly until the Second World War, but it became a world cultural power, an exporter of popular culture in the 1920s. Here's the writer F. Scott Fitzgerald, himself a symbol and chronicler of the Jazz Age, author of Great Gatsby and many other famous novels, writing to a friend in 1921 saying, you might have been joking to call New York the capital of culture, but it's going to become that. Culture follows money, which is a very American attitude. And here's Fitzgerald a few years later, looking back and saying, after the First World War, we, the United States, were the most powerful nation so who could tell us any longer what was fashionable and what was fun? And in these years, the United States and really New York City in particular became a kind of cultural capital, not the only place certainly, but one of the places that decided what was fashionable and what was fun. What did Europeans see in the 1910s, 1920s when they looked at the United States from across the Atlantic? You know, we like to look at different kinds of historical sources, primary sources in this course, and think about what we can learn about the past from different kinds of documents or artifacts. So here's one for us to puzzle over. And if we were in class together, I would let you puzzle over it and see how much you could decode. We could go through our four steps of, of analyzing a primary source, source the source, observe or read the source, contextualize it and corroborate what we've learned. So we start by identifying the source. What are we looking at here? Well, this is an ink drawing published in 1915 by Francis Picabia. Picabia was a French avant-garde painter and artist uh, living in New York City, associated with Cubism and the Dada movement. Dada is like a, an avant-garde art movement of the 1910s and 20s, based uh, especially in Zurich and Paris and New York. And Dada art was kind of abstract and strange. The, the Dadaists rejected the, sen the sentimentality of 19th century art. They also kind of just rejected realism and logic. They embraced weirdness and silliness and nonsense. They liked visual puzzles and puns. So that might help us to understand what we are looking at. Step two, observe the source or read the source. Well, what are we actually looking at? And here, if we were in class, I would, I would let you puzzle this out. And many of you might be puzzled, but likely somebody in the class would raise their hand and be able to identify this as a drawing of a spark plug. So that's a part of an engine, like a car engine that creates the spark that starts the engine, ignites the engine. And I'm sure many people in the class could translate the title of this piece of art Portrait d'une jeune fille américaine dans l'état de nudité, portrait of a 
young American girl or an American girl in a state of nudity. But what does that mean? Well, knowing Pacavia and knowing Dada, it's meant to be a riddle. It's meant to be a puzzle. It's meant to be some kind of a pun. A spark plug generates an electrical spark, which starts a car engine. Maybe the meaning here is sexual. He's saying that, you know, an attractive girl generates a spark, it kindles a flame. Maybe he's being critical. Maybe he's saying American girls, American women are all interchangeable, mass-produced machines. Uh, maybe it's both. If we move on to the steps of contextualizing and corroborating what, we, what we've learned, it probably helps to know that in this period, in 1915, America was already rapidly becoming the home of the automobile, the home of mass production, the cutting edge of technology, really. And so when people like Pacabia or other Europeans visited the United States, I mean, they weren't impressed by America's high culture. They weren't impressed by its literature or its opera or its art but they were impressed by its machines. To them, that was what was exciting about America. That was what was sexy about America. And Picabia himself said, almost immediately upon coming to America, it flashed upon me that the genius of the modern world is machinery. The machine has become part of human life, perhaps the very soul. So now we're getting much closer to what Picabia was probably, what he probably meant with this funny little piece of art. You get a similar view of America from another French observer a few years later. The great modernist architect Le Corbusier visited New York City in 1935, and he said the two most significant cultural productions of the United States, the great achievements of American culture, were jazz music and skyscrapers. And in fact, he saw them as, as crucially connected. He said, Manhattan is jazz in stone and steel. And I've illustrated this quote from a cover from the New Yorker magazine, which also emerged in the 1920s. And in this cover, which looks strikingly modern to me, considering it's almost 100 years old now, you see the modern city, the modern city represented by the skyscraper, the electric light, and the automobile, all of which created a new way of, of viewing the city, and especially the city at night, which an earlier generation might have thought of as a fearsome place, a scary place, but, but was becoming a kind of a playground with its own kind of modern beauty. The 1920s were the golden age of the American skyscraper, especially in New York City, especially in Manhattan, which just shot up into the sky in these years. Here's a picture of one of these great pictures of these workmen working high above the ground, completing the Empire State Building. And in the background of the picture, you can see the Chrysler Building, which was completed in, I think, 1927. To my mind, the Chrysler Building is the most beautiful skyscraper of the Art Deco era. In 1956, a Dutch-American scholar named John Cohenhoven wrote an essay called, What's American About America? And this is another question I, I like to ask the class. What do you think of what, I mean, what elements of US culture just seem intrinsically American to you? And this is a question you can think about, maybe talk about on teams if you like, but here's what Cohenhoven said writing in 1956. So he produced this list, the Manhattan skyline, talking about skyscrapers, town plan, the skyscraper, the Model T Ford, and so on down the list. You can, you can read it yourself. If you're listening to the audio version, come on back and read the slide. Now, what do all these things have in common? What Cohenhoven said in his essay is that these 12 things all represent 
uh, kind of dialogue between structure and improvisation. They all, what they have in common is kind of rigid rhythm or structure on the bottom and then creative improvisation on top. So jazz music has this regular propulsive rhythm, but then the musicians improvise the tune. The gridiron town plan, that is towns laid out on grids, you know, it's a strict grid, all the streets at right angles, but then you can build anything on it. Comic strips come in these little panels, these regular squares, but you fill these squares with art and whimsy. The formula of the soap opera, the assembly line production, this to Cohen Hoven is the American genius. Now, now you can decide whether you agree with that or not, and maybe I haven't explained it very well. But when I look at Cohen Hoven's list, what I notice is that of these 12 things that are most American about America, almost all of them, eight out of 12, are strongly associated with the 1920s. They weren't all necessarily invented in the 1920s, but they became widespread, they became mass produced, they reached new levels of sophistication and saturation in those years. And so looking at this list, I think we're coming closer to identifying what the world saw or what Europeans saw when they looked at America in the 1920s. They saw modernity, they saw industrialization and mass production, they saw new technology, they saw speed and rhythm, they saw creative improvisation over a steady driving beat. And that was attractive, that was infectious, that was cool. So what made this culture so appealing? What happened in the 1920s to produce this? Well, there's, there's several things we can talk about, several things that we probably take for granted today because they are so basic to our understanding of how popular culture works, of what popular culture is, of what it means to be cool, of what it means to be up to date, that we don't always even realize these things have a history, that these things had to be invented. Basically, in the 1920s, the culture industry adopted techniques of mass production. It became a mass culture. American culture began taking its cues from youth culture, and American culture took its cues from African-American culture. So the culture of America in the 1920s was a mass culture, a youth culture, and a Black culture. And those are the things I want to talk about today. My lecture also has a kind of a, a hidden theme which I'm not gonna spell out right now. It was sort of unintentional. It was only after giving this lecture or, or an earlier version of it a couple of years ago that I realized many of the examples I had pulled out had something significant in common, possibly something troubling in common. I'm not gonna spell it out until the end, but you watch and see if you can kind of, kind of uncover the subterranean theme of this lecture. So what did it mean to make a mass culture? I'm gonna talk about the economic history of the 1920s uh, in our next lecture. For now, let me just say that culture became big business in the 1920s. And like every other big business in America, it got big by mastering the technology of mass production. And so in the 1920s, we see the maturation, the invention or maturation of a number of new media, all of which are mass media, phonograph records, the movies, radio, comic strip, mass circulation, newspapers, and magazines. Now, most of these were actually invented in the late 19th century, the 1880s, 1890s, but all of them achieved some kind of breakthrough in popularity and sophistication in or around the 1920s. That's when they really became mass media. That's when they became art, if you will. 
I talked a few weeks ago about national markets and national brands, how products like Budweiser beer and Heinz ketchup could now be shipped all over the country. And so they became the first nation spanning products, the first nation spanning corporations. New media technology, like the phonograph, like radio, meant that the same thing could happen to culture. And I mean, I could do a whole lecture on any one of these media. In fact, I'd probably be happier teaching a course on, on you know, American popular culture than on some of the darker stuff we have to cover. But just very briefly, if we start with music, in the 1920s, music went from something that most people produced on their own to something most people consumed until recorded music. I mean, music did not exist without someone playing it. If you wanted to hear music, you'd, you'd play it yourself or, or go to a concert. But with the coming of the phonograph and then the radio, for just a little bit of money, you could hear the very best musicians in the world on command whenever you wanted. The opera singer Enrico Caruso was one of the first worldwide celebrities not on the basis of his performances, but on the basis of his records. The first million selling record was Caruso singing Pagliacci, uh, recorded in 1902. So technology like the phonograph, the record player, made culture into mass culture, into a mass produced commodity in a way it never was before. Today, we really value authenticity and, and many people associate mass production with a decline in quality. But that's not how Americans tended to see it in the 1920s. In the 1920s, they thought, oh, instead of, you know, listening to your Uncle Fred or, or, or singing yourself like some kind of sucker, now you could listen to the greatest opera singers in the world. Now the Columbia Record Company could print a million records that all sounded exactly the same. That's mass culture. While music was changing its, its medium of distribution, uh, film, moving pictures, the movies were a brand new medium, a brand new art form coming into its own. Motion picture technology, uh, like I said, appeared in the very last years of the 19th century. By the early 20th century, there were little film studios in several American cities, really all around the world in several countries. The leading film producers uh, were in Paris. By the end of the First World War, the kind of center of gravity of film production had moved to the United States. The American film studios, almost all of them were established by Jewish Americans, uh, usually immigrants from Eastern Europe. The movie business kind of grew out of vaudeville and uh, these Nickelodeon arcades. You know, the business wasn't respectable at its birth. It seemed kind of sketchy, tawdry, maybe immoral. And so the old WASP elite, the established business owners, were too genteel, too classy to get into motion pictures. So it was newcomers, people like these Jewish Americans, who built this new industry. And they built it in this fast-growing city on the West Coast, Los Angeles, where land was cheap and also where Edison might not track them down. One of the main reasons that a lot of filmmakers moved from New York out to California was because Thomas Edison owned a lot of the patents on motion picture technology and he had a way of suing anybody that tried to get into the business. But California was far enough away in those days that, that they could get out of the range of his uh, patents or at least his lawsuits. And so Los Angeles, and in particular, a, a neighborhood outside of Los Angeles called Hollywood, became synonymous with the motion picture in these years. The first feature film shot in Hollywood, that is the first sort of full-length film, was The Squaw Man, directed by D.W. Griffith. 
and it was appropriately enough a Western. It was actually a love story about a, a white man and a native woman who fall in love. And it's kind of remarkable for the time that the, the native woman was actually played by a native actress, the actress Red Wing. It wasn't just the First World War that led to the dominance of American films. American films were good. People like Griffith, who of course would make Birth of a Nation uh, a year later, uh, but Griffith and other American directors pioneered a new kind of storytelling. They invented film techniques like close-ups and fast cuts between things and uh, action-oriented stories with chase scenes and fights and stunts. This is a glorious action sequence from the silent film comedy genius Buster Keaton but stills don't do uh, him justice. It, if you want to see some crazy, dangerous old stunts, just, just Google or search on YouTube for Buster Keaton films. They are early masterpieces of kind of constant kinetic action, motion, stunts, danger, excitement, everything that became associated with American films. By the mid-1920s, Hollywood films dominated the world market. Here's a photograph of the New York City premiere of Al Jolson's film, The Jazz Singer in 1927. And The Jazz Singer uh, is famous for being the first full length talking picture, picture with people talking with sound. Jolson's film was semi-autobiographical. That is, it told the story of a young Jewish American immigrant who defied the traditions of his devout Jewish family to become an entertainer. So it was a story of assimilation of the melting pot of a Jewish immigrant who became American by singing American music, that is jazz. In fact, what he sang is not really what we would call jazz. And, and you can see by the picture, he is in blackface. What, what Jolson sings in the film is really blackface minstrel songs. So this film is also a story of blackface minstrelsy, of whites blacking their faces to perform a cartoon parody of blackness. I'll say more about blackface minstrelsy in a moment. I just want to gesture to the complexity of what's happening culturally in this film. It's a movie about a Jewish immigrant who becomes American by blacking up his face and performing this parody of blackness. In a way, he becomes white by performing blackface. I'm not saying it's not racist, but it is a complicated kind of melting pot story of assimilation and imitation and appropriation. And that makes it a good metaphor for American culture as a whole. Jewish Americans and also African Americans uh, really played a key role, outsized roles in many of these new media. And both Jewish Americans and African Americans found success in fields that maybe native-born white WASP Americans often considered disreputable. Things like the movies, jazz music, also pulp magazines and uh, comic books. I think I mentioned the invention of the comic strip when talking about yellow journalism, but maybe not. I know that I have mentioned to you the new mass circulation newspapers of the late 19th century, papers like Pulitzer's New York World and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal. Pulitzer really reinvented the newspaper in the 1880s and 1890s. He made it more accessible. He made it easier to read. He added all sorts of new features like sports pages, features aimed at women, and comic strips. He also made it cheaper, cutting the price to like a penny an issue. And he did that by adding a lot more advertisements. But this formula worked and, and the circulation of the New York world jumped up to like 100,000, 200,000 copies a day. 
What you see here is the yellow kid. He was the breakout character in one of the first newspaper comic strips. And in fact, the yellow kid is what gives yellow journalism its name. As I said before, many of these new mass media were invented in the 1880s or 1890s, but reached new levels of popularity and sophistication by the 1920s. And that's true of the comic strip as well. One of the first great comic strips was called Crazy Cat. Uh, Crazy Cat first appeared in the New York Journal, so Pulitzer's competition, and it ran from 1913 to 1944. Crazy Cat is really simple and it's the template for so many comics and cartoons that have come after. It tells the story of a kind of love triangle between a cat, Crazy, who is in love with a mouse, Ignatz. Uh, but Ignatz the mouse hates Crazy the cat and is always throwing bricks at him or her. One of the interesting things about Crazy Cat is that Crazy is of indeterminate gender. He or she switches back and forth in different times. Here uh, you see Ignatz saying, I notice crazy that sometimes you are a miss, then again, you are a mister. And then there's this dog, Officer Pup, who loves crazy and is always trying to protect him or her. And that's the whole premise. Just crazy following Ignatz, Ignatz throwing bricks at crazy, Officer Pup looking on. I cannot get across the appeal of this comic strip in a single image or slide, but I actually highly recommend it. Crazy Cat is a beautiful work of art. It's offbeat and surreal. It plays with language. It plays with gender. The art and the color is really beautiful in a simple way. An interesting thing about George Harriman, the artist who, who created Crazy Cat, is that he was black, but he passed for white he pretended to be white for his entire adult life. I, mean, I guess technically he had one African-American and one white parent, but in 1920s America, that made him black. And nobody knew it. I mean, maybe his friends knew it, but nobody in the public knew it. It was like 30 years after his death in the 1970s that a biographer uncovered his ethnic heritage. This is a remarkable thing, although it's also very sad in a way. But I find it interesting to speculate if Harriman's own biography and the fact that he was passing as white is reflected in the offbeat way Crazy Cat, the strip, played with things like passing, with gender, with love and identity. So the culture of the 1920s was a mass culture, thanks to developments in technology and, and marketing. But technology alone would not account for the propulsive power of American culture in the 1920s and after. Something else that happened in this period that we have taken for granted ever since is the emergence of a distinct youth culture. That is a popular culture that was aimed at, that was marketed to young people, people in their teens and twenties, that was distinct from the culture of older adults, but that older adults eventually copied. Here's a quote from a hundred years ago that, that seems very contemporary, a young person complaining about how the older generation ruined this world before passing it on to the younger generation. And the image here from Life magazine of an elderly gent doing the can-can or the Charleston with a young flapper is appropriately called teaching old dogs new tricks. So where did this new youth culture come from? One place it came from is where you are right now, and that is university. In the 19th century, most people didn't go to university. Most people didn't even go to high school. The democratization of high school and to a lesser extent colleges and universities helped to create youth or to, to kind of mark off youth 
as a distinct period in life. And a lot of the characteristic fads and fashions of the 1920s were actually born on college campuses in the college environment, especially the wealthy Ivy League colleges. Things like shorter skirts and cloche hats for women, these uh, raccoon fur coats for college men, these were recognizable college fashions of the era. Another college pastime that became mass culture in the 1920s is football. Baseball had been the national pastime for years, but football really only became mass culture uh, in this era, largely from college ball. But not everybody went to university. Besides university and college, another thing that fueled a distinct youth culture was urbanization and industrialization. And one crucial site for creating that culture was the dance hall. I'd like you to look at these two pictures. The top one is of a New York saloon in the 1880s and the bottom is a Milwaukee dance hall in 1914. What's different about them? The most obvious difference I think is that the top picture is all men. In 19th century America, most public life and especially nightlife was directed at a male clientele. Men went to saloons and they drank with other men. Also there's young men and old men here drinking together. In the bottom picture, we have young men and young women, both sexes, but all young people. By the turn of the century, America's urban population was growing at an unprecedented pace. In the cities, young women as well as young men were flooding into new office jobs, new shop and factory jobs. Some of them were immigrants from other countries. A lot of them were just native born Americans moving in from the farm. A place like New York City in 1900 had nearly half a million wage earning women Almost one third of them were between just 16 and 20 years old. Most of them were single. Most of these young women lived with relatives or in private lodgings with some kind of supervision or chaperone, but they still had a degree of economic and personal independence that was quite new. And what did these young women and young men want to do with their independence? Well, they wanted to go out dancing. They wanted to meet each other. So in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, you see the emergence of working class dance halls in just about every major city in the United States. And you see for the first time an unchaperoned commercial youth culture. Young people also started dating at this time, as opposed to courting or calling, which was the kind of 19th century model, they started going on unchaperoned dates, going to places like dance halls, parks, Nickelodeons, penny arcades, restaurants, nightclubs. And the shift from calling, which was where a young man would call at a young woman's home and the visit would be chaperoned, to treating, which is where men would take girls out to dance and socialize, to dating, happened very fast. And like a lot of cultural innovations, the working class invented it, the rich copied the working class, and the middle class copied the rich. Dating is what they called it when treating moved from the working class to the upper class and became respectable. I encourage you to look for this pattern in all sorts of cultural innovations, old and new. Born in the working class, not quite respectable, copied by the rich and then gradually becoming respectable as it trickles down to the middle class. What kind of music did they play at these dance halls? Well, all kinds of music, as long as it had a rhythm that would make you get up and dance. Fast rhythms, syncopated rhythms, propulsive rhythms that make it fun to move. In the 1910s, there was a new dance craze pretty much every month. The cakewalk, the turkey trot, the bunny hug, the honey bug, the hippo hop, the hoochie coochie, the Boston dip, 
the Texas Tommy, the lemon squeeze, the kitchen sink. And this too is characteristic of both youth culture and consumer culture. It goes out of date fast. And that's a good thing if you're selling culture, if you're in the cultural industry. The specific fads are less important than the churn. Last year is yesterday's news. You always want there to be something new, something new to buy and sell. The dance halls and their demand for new music contributed directly to the rise of Tin Pan Alley, which was a neighborhood, a stretch of, of West 28th Street in Manhattan, where a number of music publishers and songwriters were clustered. And even before phonograph records became mass media, the Tin Pan Alley publishers turned sheet music into mass media. They hired song pluggers who were kind of a cross between musicians and salesmen to promote sheet music to these dance halls, to go around playing songs for these dance halls and get them to buy the music. Many of the great American songwriters, people like Irving Berlin and George Gershwin got their start as Tin Pan Alley song pluggers. And Gershwin and Berlin, again, were Jewish Americans, and they wrote the classic songs that have become known as the Great American Songbook. This churn, hundreds of thousands of young people dancing in dance halls across the country, and, and musicians and songwriters banging out songs, everyone chasing the next dance craze, the next propulsive rhythm to take the kids by storm. Maybe it wasn't always fine art, but it produced a lot of hits. And it does a lot to explain the ferocious creativity of American music and American culture in this era. A crucial part of this story that I've only touched on is that the popular culture of the 1920s, it wasn't just a mass culture and it wasn't just a youth culture. It was very often a black culture, or to be precise, it was an African-American culture being sold to white youth. The black rock R&B musician Screaming Jay Hawkins had an album you know, 20 years ago called Black Music for White People. And in a way, black music for white people uh, describes almost every major era of American popular music, from ragtime to blues to jazz to swing to rock to disco to hip hop, you name it. Now lying behind and beneath all of this, we can't avoid talking about it, is the era of blackface minstrelsy. Blackface minstrelsy was white performers and sometimes black performers painting their faces black, dressing up in, in a cartoon stereotype of African-Americans and performing a kind of comical parody of what African-Americans looked like to white eyes. It's important to remember that blackface was a kind of theft, a kind of appropriation, that it was a dehumanizing kind of parody of the people with the least power in American culture. And that's why it is offensive today. That's why blacking up, why these images hurt people in the present today. But because this is a history class, it's also important for me to tell you that this was ubiquitous, that blackface was everywhere in popular culture in the 19th and early 20th century. In a way, it was American popular culture, dressing up and playing at being black. Why does Mickey Mouse have a white face and white gloves? because that was the instantly recognizable iconography of blackface. Which is not even to say that Mickey Mouse was meant to be black or a parody of blackness. It's just that this was everywhere. There's a famous book on blackface and the 19th century minstrel show called Love and Theft. And that title I really like, Love and Theft. White Americans have always loved African-American culture and they've always stolen it. And that wasn't new in the 1920s. What was new in the 1920s was 
the increasing visibility and the explosion of creativity and confidence among black performers who got to play their own music, who got to perform for both black and white audiences in their own right. Ragtime music, blues music, jazz music, swing music. These were all great gifts of African-American culture to the world. I'm gonna talk next week about the great migration of African-Americans from the South into the North. But very briefly, in 1910, something like 90% of African-Americans lived in the South, most of them in the rural countryside. But in this era, Blacks began to move uh, to Southern cities and then up to Northern cities. And by the First World War, the great migration of African-Americans from the South into the North was in full force. Millions of African-Americans moved from the South to the North in these years. One of the places they moved to was Harlem in New York City. In 1900, there were only a handful of African-Americans living in New York City. By the 1920s, there were close to 200,000 African-Americans living in Harlem, uh, African-Americans from the South, as well as Black immigrants from the West Indies. And Harlem quickly became a kind of cultural capital of Black America and a mecca for migrants from Black migrants from the South and immigrants from elsewhere. And it was really remarkable and, and powerful for Americans to see in Harlem this almost autonomous Black city with Black doctors, Black policemen, a, a thriving Black middle class. I don't want to romanticize it too much. Harlem was still poor. That Black middle class was probably more precarious than it seemed. A lot of the businesses and property in Harlem were mostly owned by whites. And because African-Americans couldn't find housing in other neighborhoods, the Harlem landlords could charge them exorbitant rents. Nevertheless, Harlem was the site of something. It was home both spiritually and literally to something called the Harlem Renaissance, which is a name for the explosion of cultural, literary, artistic creativity that came out of this time and place. The literature and poetry and writing of people like Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Du Bois, Zora Neale Hurston, Claude McKay, all made it clear that there was a new African-American culture being born in Harlem, in America at this time. The political side of this movement was often called the New Negro Movement. Here you see a parade in Harlem in 1924 and this great slogan, the New Negro has no fear. But what Harlem was most famous for was its nightlife, its nightclubs, its speakeasies, and its music. And the music of the Harlem Renaissance was inescapably jazz. So what was jazz? Musicologists and, and jazz fans love to split hairs on what is and isn't real jazz. But I'm going to use the word jazz the way Americans in the 1920s did, which is to say very loosely. Jazz was originally a slang term that meant sex, as was rock and roll for that matter. And like rock and roll, the word jazz went from meaning sex to a kind of dancing and then eventually a kind of music. The turn of the century was the heyday of ragtime. I played a little bit of Scott Joplin for you two weeks ago. It was also the birth of the blues, a kind of music which grew out of African-American work songs and spirituals. In cities like New Orleans, especially in Storyville, which was New Orleans' notorious red light district in the first decade of the 20th century, band leaders like Buddy Bolden and Jelly Roll Morton, who you heard at the start of this lecture, started fusing the classic patterns of the 12-bar blues to more complicated syncopated rhythms. 
those off the beat rhythms that da 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 called swinging the beat that make the music bouncy infectious make you want to dance and what jazz music did is it brought together those syncopated ragtime rhythms and the kind of blues chord progressions with increasingly complicated melodies very often improvised on the spot melodies remember cohenhoven saying what's american about america improvisation on top of a steady propulsive rhythm. Jazz broke big in around 1917 when a quintet of white musicians from New Orleans who called themselves the original Dixieland Jazz Band, note the, the spelling, started a regular gig at uh, the 400 Club, a restaurant in Midtown Manhattan. And the original, the so-called original Dixieland Jazz Band recorded two of their songs for the phonograph, for the Victor Talking Machine Company. They didn't invent jazz, but they recorded it and that made it sellable and exportable and consumable around the world. And the rest was history. By 1925, Joel Rogers said that jazz ranked with the movie and the dollar as the foremost exponent of modern Americanism, as a, as a foremost export of American culture. Now, obviously, prohibition is also part of the Harlem story. I talked about prohibition last time. From 1920 to 1933, it was illegal to make or sell alcohol in the United States. But as everybody knows, alcohol consumption went on. And prohibition created a shadow industry of illegal speakeasies and bootleggers and places people could go to drink. And one of the main places people went to drink was black neighborhoods, places like Harlem. And the Harlem Renaissance was really fueled by wealthy young white people coming uptown to slum it in Harlem to get drunk. And Harlem's dance halls and jazz clubs and speakeasies became a kind of exotic, exciting destination for curious whites. They called this slumming. So the sad truth is that many of the most famous Harlem clubs where this great African-American music was being born actually excluded black customers. Cab Calloway's Cotton Club infamously employed only light-skinned dancers in its chorus line. Often when we're talking about popular music or just popular culture, people have a tendency to equate blackness with authenticity. So the more black a music is, the more African-American it is, the more authentic it, it seems to be. And, and there's reason for this. There's, there's truth to this. Certainly jazz, like the blues, like ragtime, like rock and roll, all grows out of African-American musical traditions. But we shouldn't fetishize blackness as authenticity. For people who do, it is irritating that the most popular jazz musician of the 1920s, the acknowledged king of jazz in the 1920s, was a portly white fellow from Colorado whose name was Paul Whiteman. And Whiteman was known for blending jazz with classical symphonic music. And it's easy to slot Whiteman into a long history of white people stealing, appropriating, watering down African-American culture. But I think there's another argument to be made here, which is that from the beginning, jazz was borrowed and shared and performed for mixed audiences and adapted by and for all different kinds of people. The nightmare of the white racist has always been race mixing, miscegenation, but the source and subject of so much of American culture has always been the mixing of different peoples. And that I think is the not so secret hidden subterranean theme of this lecture, whether it's minstrelsy, racial mixing, passing, play acting, the mixing, borrowing, stealing of cultures. 
yes, blackface was dehumanizing and insulting, but it was also a warped form of appropriation. Like I say, love and theft, people steal what they covet, they steal what they love. And this mixing isn't just between black and white. I talked a little bit about Jewish Americans today, how Jewish immigrants found a niche in America, selling American culture, selling Americanness back to the dominant wasp culture. But I could have told a very similar story about Italian Americans or Latino immigrants, you name it. This process wasn't always pretty. It was rarely fair. The right person rarely got paid and it was rarely politically correct. But this mixing, this borrowing, this stealing and blending of cultures, African-American culture in particular, but all kinds of other cultures, that is the not so secret secret sauce of American culture in the 1920s. And that is in a way the last best answer to what made American culture so vibrant, so intoxicating, so irresistible, what made America cool. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't. I'd be happy to hear from you. Thanks very much for watching.